The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, offering support for your spiritual growth and addiction recovery. Here's Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice and Reverend Dan Beckett. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery on Unity Online Radio. We're glad you're with us today. I am Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice. And I'm Reverend Dan Beckett. And together, we discuss ways that spirituality and recovery intertwine and work together to support your spiritual growth and your recovery journey. And if you're listening live, you're welcome to join the discussion with your comments and questions. You can call us right now at 816-251-3555. Again, that number is 816-251-3555. We'd love to hear from you. And Facebook users, you can also message us right now during the show or anytime during the week from our Facebook page, Spirit of Recovery. Just click the Send Message button right below the banner. And just as with phone calls, your anonymity is always respected. So many, if not most, recovering addicts can attest to the effects of this racing mind. Once we get clean and sober, it seems that our brain just attacks us with a million random, disquieting, and uncomfortable thoughts. How do we get control? Well, we'll begin today by sharing our own experiences of that racing mind, a a mind that seems to have a mind of its own, and then move into the solution of mindfulness, whatever that means. Hmm. Then after the break, we'll share exactly how we used mindfulness to move from obsession to peace. So, Lonnie, can you start us off by sharing some of your experiences with a a mind that seems to have a mind of its own? Well, you know, when I think back about my experience with that, um, I can see that I've always had an active mind. And once I started encountering certain things in my life that were traumatic to me and and certain things that I, you know, didn't want to deal with any longer, I can see that my mind just started running wild. It would take something and it would make a big story out of it and it would project into the future. And, you know, that power of imagination would just go everywhere. And so, you know, part of my experience with this is that I never got any relief from this, this uh, incessant chattering in my brain. You know, what about this? What about this? And oh my God, and it's going to do that, you know, that kind of thing going on all the time. Yes, I know it very, very well. <laughs> I feel like you're you jumped in my brain for a second because you just described exactly what it's like for me. That whole, um, you know, rapid fire. Oh, this is going to happen. Then that's going to happen. And what do we call that? Contemplating the wreckage of our future, right? Yeah. I'm good at that. 
But I, I, my mind could definitely, it can still do this, but not nearly as much. Um, I could definitely get obsessed with the situation, particularly, a, you know, something I was concerned about, like a problem at work, say, and, and really not be able to feel like I could relax as long as that problem remained unsolved. And um, that, you know, that was sort of a, for me, a setup for a, a life of, um, well, I guess a life that had a recovery journey in its future, put it that way. But yeah, racing mind, especially with anything that, that concerned me, you know, anything that, that had some fear around it, I could definitely get to a place where I had trouble um, letting it go at all. You know, and I think for me, um, I, I understand this uh, racing mind is the brain is always active. And, and as I mentioned earlier, mine was. And I would find things I didn't want to think about. And then I would try to try to switch to think about something else. But then when I wanted to focus, I couldn't focus. And I'm, I'm thinking back before I even got really into the into the drugs and alcohol, you know, uh, study hall in high school. I'm supposed to be focusing on this history and my brain is somewhere else, you know, and, and you could call it daydreaming, but it wasn't peaceful, idyllic, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. drifting off with the clouds. It was all of this other stuff, this chatter that was going on incessantly. And so, you know, part of, for me, part of this experience is not just the constant chatter, but the being somewhere else instead of in my head or, or present, you know, my, I want to be somewhere else. I want to escape. Yes. Our, our mind is not, uh, what we say, keep my, I want to keep my head where my feet are. My head was somewhere other than where my feet were. Um, my mind had, and again, I think, uh, it's perhaps true and we'll see that, that everything I recall today still goes on to a, a minor degree compared to how it used to be. But my mind seems to like to rehearse things. It either likes to rehearse things that are coming up, um, or it likes to rehash things that happened. Uh, you know, the, I went there and then they said this and I said that and not even necessarily bad things. You know, it doesn't have to be something I was irritated about. It could just be something that that transpired. And uh, I find that that pattern of uh, rehearsing, I'm much better about noticing it now. And, um, you know, in a little while when we talk about the solution to this, I've been able to apply it. Um, effectively, but rehearsing. And I, I know I'm not alone in that. Although I think for a long time, I might have suspected I was because this is not the kind of thing we generally go around talking about, right? I don't, until I got on a recovery path, I don't remember having conversations with anyone about things like, man, you know, my mind really just goes on its own or, or I get really worried about things. And this is what that's like for me. You know, I think that word worry is something that many of us grew up with. I remember uh, it being kind of a family pattern. And and if you're not worrying, you're not paying attention. You know, you're not engaged. You're not uh, a part of what's going on here. How come you're not worried about that? You know, and so it was reinforced and culturated, if you will, this, this preoccupation with what could go wrong, this preoccupation with how bad it's going to be. Um, you know, and, and whether it was applied to a situation or to a person, it didn't seem to make a lot of difference, but part of my pattern was to make things awful, you know, uh, and it was supposedly if, if I, if I know how bad it's going to be, I can be prepared, yeah. you know? So, and in that way, the logic made sense to me, but today I, it doesn't, 
it doesn't make sense to me. I can follow that train of thought, but I know that that's not really what happens. I know I was definitely not in touch what, with, with what was happening um, kind of in my, you know, in my body, in my spirit, or even really in my emotions uh, because I was so uh, wound up with whatever was going on in my head. You know, I seemed in a sense to be trapped in my head, but I don't know that I would have thought to characterize it that way in the past when it was happening because it just seemed so normal, you know, that I didn't know what I didn't know. And it's again, it's like it's like uh, the fish becoming aware of water, right? When I'm when I'm in it all the time, it just I don't see it as anything. I have no distance from it. I have no frame of reference. And so when I was uh, wound up in my mind all the time, not really in touch with what was going on with my body or or spiritually, I didn't know that. But looking back on it now, I can see that that is what was happening. And of course, that becomes part of the solution when it's time to talk about that. But um, that obsessive or racing mind uh, seemed to be much of the world. And I didn't really know that that anything was awry, a habit, old habit. You know, I've noticed also, you mentioned earlier that this seems to still happen, although it's also a um, uh, to a lot lesser degree than it used to be. I find for me that it, it, sh- it shows up as preoccupation today. You know, I have this, I still have this ability to focus. It's, it's that what I obsess about or what I focus on is different than what it was previously. But I also know that I'm not always aware of it. Um, have you ever driven to work? And you don't remember the stoplights or the turns that you made or or that you had to take a different route. You know, I mean, so my brain still checks out and goes somewhere sometimes when I'm not really staying present and being, being focused. And I think that's related to that desire to escape or that need, you know, maybe it's laziness, just not, you know, spending the energy to stay present and focused. But I, I find it still happens. That's a good question. I, I guess I don't really know. I hadn't considered what's going on with that. It's such an it's such an old pattern in me, and um, I know that you know the name of the game is not to completely stop ever doing those things. You know, it's it's to regain the power of choice along the way. And I know for me that I'm just the way that I'm wired. I'm very idea oriented, right? If we look, say, at the Enneagram. Um, you know, the sort of the personality, the spiritual personality profile. I'm in the, I'm in the category of mind oriented, you know, uh, thinkers by default. Now everyone does that as well, but some of us lead with it. You know what I mean? And I lead with ideas in the realm of mind. And so given that, having learned that, it's not surprising that I would, you know, learn to camp out in my head uh, along the way as a habit and not, you know, not really being emotion-oriented, not being action-oriented, uh, at least as the, the you know, first line, like some other Enneagram types are body-oriented, action-oriented, or heart and emotion-oriented. Um, it makes perfect sense that I would camp out in my head and, and get uh, really adept at that. And so, of course, it becomes a matter of balancing with other things. 
Well, and so, you know, you, you mentioned that uh, whether you're body-oriented, head-oriented, or emotion-oriented, the last thing I wanted to be was emotion-oriented. You know, that's what I was running away from was my emotions. You know, and, and the thing that I found about this is that if I thought, I learned this later, my thinking creates the emotions, which create the chemicals, which feeds the thinking. You know, I mean, try to think straight when you're under the influence of adrenaline, you know, and a lot of adrenaline. It just doesn't happen. And so, you know, I was trying to avoid having emotions, and yet here I am creating my own just with the chemicals that I was producing by my thinking. It's crazy. And uh, when we talk about things like this, I always have to point out that um, this, well, let's call this ability hyper-focus, right? Because it, it seems like our mind hyper-focus. It's not always a bad thing. What's, what's not good about it is that if I'm using it in an unskillful manner or that I don't have a choice. Like it, it has me, you know what I mean? Because if I want to be able to focus very closely on something, um, then it's good to be able to ha have that ability. It's just when I don't get to choose it, you know, when I don't get to choose when it turns itself on or turns itself off, that it definitely becomes problematic. So again, I guess I'm saying it's, it's not that the solution is trying to get rid of that so much as um, to balance it with other and, and to regain the power of choice, right? Addiction, in a sense, at its very core, is the lack of power of choice. So that's so how now, I've kind of come to look at it. Yeah, I get that. So now that we know about this challenge, this racing obsessive mind, what's the solution? Well, in unity, we affirm that we are spiritual beings having a human experience and not vice versa. This runs to the very core, in fact, of unity thought, namely that we are all, first and foremost, expressions of the divine. We may differ individually in the ways we show up in the world, but we are all connected to and through and in spirit. So the solution to the, challenging of a, to the challenge of a racing, obsessive mind is to connect or reconnect with our essence of spirit. And that connection always brings mindfulness. And so that's what we want to focus on today. You know, we hear a lot about mindfulness, even in popular culture. But what exactly does that mean? What is it? What does it look like? Is it something I can learn and practice? And if so, how? Dan, would you be willing to share some of the things you've discovered or learned about mindfulness? Yeah, you know what 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 comes up first for me is that and and it's just I guess because I was just sharing about it, mindfulness is uh, the ability in a way or at least in part, it's the ability to uh, have a choice about what is happening. Say you know a choice about do I want to focus my mind on a problem that I would like to solve or uh, would I rather just be able to relax. And if I am if I am mindful, that means to me that um, I am aware of what's going on, right? It doesn't have a hold of me with me not being aware of, you know, how did this happen again? Why why is my brain doing this? Uh, you know, I'd rather be sleeping, and here I am worried about this dumb thing or something that happened years ago or or whatever. So mindfulness means that um, at least in part that I have some ability to choose what's going on. I have some distance, if you will, you know, I can zoom back and instead of having my face like right in the problem, I can kind of zoom back and, and see more of what's going on and perhaps 
have some ability to, to decide if that's how I want to use my mind at this time. You know, for me, mindfulness starts with the awareness that I'm not mindful. Mm. Like that, oh, where did my brain go? Oh, what am I thinking about? I don't want to be here. Um, you know, and this happens fairly regularly with me. After I've had a certain number of hours of sleep, my brain wakes up and then it wakes me up. You know, and it wakes up with with all the fears, you know, and it's usually one or two fears um, that are kind of running around in there, and it starts making up stories. And so I get a regular opportunity to practice getting back in the moment, bringing my, my brain back to the right now, the here and now, because, you know, I but I have to be aware when I wake up, like, oh, there it is again. It's going on again, you know, in order to do something about that. And so for me, it's a state of being conscious or aware that that something is going on that I don't want to be happening. I agree that awareness is always the first step. And even, even as, as you said, even if my awareness is only that my mind is doing what it's doing. That's a good start, right? That's the right road to be going down at least. You know, I'm remembering um, the excellent Unity book, Living Originally by Reverend Robert Brummett. And he talks in there as he lays out in 10 chapters, kind of a a progression of practices. And it begins first and foremost with awareness. Am I even aware that this is happening? Uh, And that's the beginning. And after awareness, um, I can move to acceptance, right? And that, I know, is an easy place to get trapped. It's I want to go from, okay, I'm aware that my mind is racing. Now, what do I have to do to make it stop? Well, I've learned I can't make it stop. In fact, any attempt to make it stop just feeds it, right? And, And it energizes it and keeps it going. But what if I were to just accept that that's what's happening now? So awareness followed by acceptance and then you know the third stage being moving into compassion um, is a path that I've found helpful and it's a path that uh, Reverend Robert outlined in his book uh, that I'm and I'm grateful for it I learned a lot from from reading that and it has helped me in my life as I've adapted um, some of the practices that he teaches you know I don't know how they measure this but I read somewhere that your average human being has something like 60 to 70,000 thoughts a day. <laughs> and you know that we we it's very difficult to become aware of all of those thoughts and it, even if we can catch a fraction of them become aware of a particular pattern of thought that our life will change. And that's what I have found for me is that you know what is it that precedes this? Um I have to be I have to start becoming aware of of where I am, what I'm thinking, how I'm feeling, and it might be any one of those things that that um, that triggers this. Oh, I need to become aware of this. You know, that might might bring that to my attention. But becoming fully aware of where I am and what I'm doing, as you have mentioned, is the is the key to it's the doorway. It it opens the door. You know, when you said acceptance, I was thinking, you know what? There is a a mile long road between awareness and acceptance <laughs> for me. Yes. You know, because it's it's not. I always think of acceptance as without emotion. You know that I that I am willing to, and maybe I need to modify that. But I think of it as being uh, I'm not fighting it anymore. I'm not resisting it, and maybe that's the same thing. But in in my resistance, it does, as you said, make it worse. And so, just maybe acceptance for me is going. Okay, it's happening now. Now, what's next? 
you know. So I guess that sixty to seventy thousand thoughts a day is more like a fire hose, you know. <laughs> and if you don't have somebody on the end of that thing pointing it in the direction you want it to go, it's just going to whip all over the place. And that's the way my brain does. Yeah, that's a great visual. I like that a lot. Uh, yeah, a mile long, a mile, a mile long road between awareness and acceptance. I can identify with that, and I think that acceptance, acceptance can be grudging acceptance, right? I think it can be resigned acceptance that hopefully will just turn into plain old uh, acceptance. But I think w what seems to be important about, it, as far as I can tell is that it doesn't have that emotional charge to it. I mean, I could, I could still have feelings about it, but it, it does, it's not so charged that it has me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So mm, I can resign myself to acceptance. I can grumble and practice acceptance, um, but I can't be mad and practice acceptance, I don't think. At least in my experience, that doesn't really work. Um, so as I ask myself, what is mindfulness and what does it look like? One thing it looks like to me is a purposeful decision to check in with my body and spirit. Now, I mentioned before that I'm very idea and mind oriented. So that part's covered already. I don't need to I don't need to take a moment and check in and make sure I'm um, considering something from the realm of ideas. I can pretty much guarantee that I am. But what I might not be doing is be uh, checked in with my body or checked in with my spirit, you know, or with my emotions, say. And so one thing that mindfulness looks like is the decision to, okay, I'm going to take a moment now, I'm going to check in with my body, I'm going to check in with my emotions and my spirit just to see what's going on, you know, and, and, and being willing to be purposely aware of those things, I find, uh, is enough. To, to, you know, kick that door open a little bit, get my toe in the door, and then it kind of unfolds from there. Um, I don't have to make my mind stop like we talked about before. I just have to recognize, hey, there are these other factors um, to balance here. Why don't I take a moment and check in with those? For me, mindfulness centers on paying attention and doing so in a, you, you use the word purposeful, um, I would say conscious and intentional manner, not because something grabbed my attention, that's more like the obsession for me, but because I make that choice you were talking about. I choose to focus on this instead. I choose to be present to this experience instead. And and for me, that uh, is the beginning of mindfulness, is that I make that choice to to be here, whether it's fun or not, whether it's comfortable or not, I choose to pay attention to it. Yeah, and, and I find that I keep circling back to that concept of choice. And to me, it's central to the experience of addiction because if I am experiencing addiction of any kind, I mean, it could be uh, a substance, it could be a behavior or um, just an emotional pattern or whatever, um, I don't have a choice, right? It has me. Like when I used to smoke, which I did for most of my life, smoke cigarettes, um, you know, it I could... I could detect at times that, you know what, the, the cigarette is telling me that we're going to go smoke. I'm not the one choosing it. In fact, in a way, I'd rather not. But in a, in a way, I didn't have a choice. That's what addiction is, I think, at, at the core of it. And so it's been helpful for, for me, and uh, this is another way to look at mindfulness, is um, 
asking or or at least just creating a space for choice to come in. And uh, I find by checking in uh, with myself, like I was saying, with my body, emotions, and spirit, or whatever, that I'm kind of widening my view. And just by doing that, it brings in the possibility of being able to choose otherwise. You know, there's many meditation practices, and I was taught that that was one of the ways to become mindful. I struggled with that, though, because it was, um, you know, everybody told you how to do it different. Mm. And so, you know, what? one of the things that helped me a lot was I had a sponsor that said, stop, you know, and he said that the acronym S-T-O-P stood for Spiritual Time of Peace. And I'm going, oh, okay. And he'd say, so stop it, which, of course, reminded me of that Bob Newhart show with all this. Just stop it. You know, but if I can bring that pause in, that's that's the beginning of becoming mindful and the beginning of of this uh, any meditation practice for me. I have to pause, take a breath and allow some space. You know, I read something once along those lines that really stuck with me. And it was just such the simplest expression of exactly that concept. And it was from uh, Eckhart Tolle. And I think it must have been from The Power of Now, because that, that's really the only book of his that I paid attention to. And I paid a lot of attention to that in the past. And he talked about this concept of a conscious breath, right? And, and what he described was basically a, a mindfulness meditation practice, but it's the simplest thing in the world. What he said was, if if you, whenever it occurs to you, you know, you don't have to set a, a timer or a calendar or an alarm or anything, but whenever it occurs, um, just pause, turn your attention within and take a conscious breath, meaning just breathe in and breathe out and, and focus on that and just be aware that that is what you're doing. That's it. Once, just do it once. He said, if you do this, whenever it occurs to you, it will completely change your life. And I think there's tremendous power in that. Again, that's that, you know, I always have this visual. If I can just kick the door open enough to get a toe in, then I know that it's going to be okay because the door will open a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more, you know, as I spend more time purposely developing my power of choice. Well, let's hold that thought because it's time for a short break. And when we come back, we'd love to hear from our listeners as we continue the conversation. The phone number. listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery with Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice and Reverend Dan Beckett. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. We're glad you're with us today. And if you're just joining us, my name is Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice, and I'm here with Reverend Dan Beckett. We'll resume our discussion in a moment, but first we want to let you know that the phone lines are open. So if you have a question or a comment to share, please give us a call at 816-251-3555. Again, that number is 816-251-3555. 
And prior to the break, we were discussing a uh, experience that um, many, most, maybe all of us have of a racing mind, you know, an uh, obsessive mind that we seem to have no choice about uh, where it goes. We also talked about the solution to that ultimately is this thing called mindfulness and what that looks like. So, Lonnie, now that we know about this challenge of erasing an obsessive mind and that the solution is mindfulness, how exactly can we use mindfulness to come to a place of peace? What does that look like? Well, in my experience, in my recovery, it's had several different faces on it over time. You know, when I first got uh, clean and sober, it was... I, I couldn't stop my mind. I couldn't redirect my mind. I had to interrupt my mind. Uh, and that looked like I would call my sponsor because I didn't know what else to do. You know, I'm having this obsessive thought. I want to go get a drink. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And, and she just told me, she said, don't drink, make a phone call. Okay. So that was the only instruction I could follow. And I would do that. And what it would do is it would interrupt that cycle, that obsessive cycle in my brain. And then I would get the next instruction, whatever it was at that point in time. But so for me, interrupting, first noticing, as we talked about earlier, the awareness, and then interrupting that pattern uh, just by doing something different was a key tool for beginning to get a handle on this. You know, that reminds me of a saying that I've heard a lot, and it goes, uh, move a muscle, change a thought. You know, so if I'm just sort of at home by myself bouncing off the walls, um, just as simple as saying, well, you know, I'm going to run down to the grocery store and, and get some bread or milk or whatever it is that I know I'm probably going to need. Just standing up, moving, you know, sort of breaking that um, obsessive mental cycle can, can in itself just help. And I, I have heard, and I confess that I'm not particularly good at this, um, but that exercising, you know, people who go to the gym or maybe they have a, a running, um, you know, go running or jogging or, or whatever, play tennis or racquetball or sports, uh, and I do none of the above. But I know uh, and have heard that that can also be very helpful. So that's also, um, you know, fits into that move a muscle, change a thought. One thing that has worked for me or been helpful when I uh, when I think about how you know how does how has mindfulness supported my recovery by asking and again this I think this is a kind of interrupting like you're saying by asking what is happening within me right now not not what's happening in my mind but what's going on with my body and emotions and spirit now so it's that it's that taking a breath it's that um, setting the intention to I'm going to shift my focus from whatever this thing I'm worried about is just for a minute and, you know, feel what it feels like to breathe, um, maybe stand up and walk around and um, just interrupt, I think, like you're saying, uh, interrupt what's going on in my head. Now, that doesn't mean that it's magically going to make that thought process stop, but at least it takes some of the obsessive nature out of it and and allows me to expand my awareness to something other than just what's going on in my head. So it's a good start. The next tool I was given after I called somebody was that somebody would say to me, when's the last time you ate? You know, I was not focused on my body at all. You know, I was focused on running away. And so I was unaware of this halt thing that they talked about. Mm. Was I hungry? Was I angry? Was I lonely? Was I tired? And they added an S to it. Or was I sick? 
you know, and that was one of the ways that I had to start focusing on, but what's going on with me instead of just in my head. And lo and behold, when I did that and took care of some of those things, then I'd, I didn't have as many of those kinds of thoughts. I was amazed to find out that being hungry fed how angry I felt, you know, that it was that it, it, it when I went and had a snack, I felt better. And then I didn't have so many angry, obsessive thoughts. And so, you know, I was given a tool like that, and that was helpful. That reminds me of the story about the hound dog sitting on the front porch just howling away, and the stranger wanders by and asks the owner, what's going on? Oh, that's my hound dog. He's just howling. He's sitting on a nail. You know, (laughs) why doesn't he move? I I don't know. That's just where he likes to sit. And he sits there and howls because he's sitting on a nail. Right? You could just get up and move. Get up and get something to eat. It's like, oh, man, I've been awake and I'm really tired and I should take a 20-minute nap or something like that. Something Again, and I think we're in that theme of interrupting. You know, let let me choose something else that will, you know, be an influence on the situation so that I can help balance it again it's not for me it's not a matter of trying to stop what's going on as a matter as it is a matter of adding to it and and opening up some choices Uh, when we talk about mindfulness i i remember certainly the formal practice of mindfulness Um, and and then also we have informal practices as as well but i wanted to share about a formal practice so a formal mindfulness practice looks like um you know in the morning when i get up i set a timer and i may or may not have a special cushion or place to sit or whatever i may or may not have a little chiming bell that i use but the the point is i have a scheduled time where i meditate and so that's a, a formal practice. And I have I have not been um, successful at maintaining a formal practice for months, for years at a time. I've done it for months. Um, but for whatever reason, it's I'm still uh, resistant to it. So sometimes I will be in a time of my life when I have a formal practice and other times I don't have a formal practice. But I know that that's one way of approaching mindfulness that can be super helpful because again, it it creates an opportunity to increase awareness. And and that is always the first step in any of this. So another thing that worked for me was, was um, a gratitude list, you know, and we've talked about that in other uh, shows, but, you know, having a gratitude practice where I chose to focus on what I am grateful four and two that uh, would change my focus from what I'm angry at and with, you know, where I would have to consciously sit down and focus on, okay, what am I going to put on this list? Because in the beginning, I could not think of things to put on the list, you know, and as I got better at it, better at not making the list, but better at a practice of being grateful, then I had more and more things to put on the list. And then there came a time when I could just reread the list and it would change the channel for me. I call it changing the channel in my brain. You know, it's like a bad TV station. (laughs) I just got to get up and change it. You know, I didn't have a remote for it. So, you know, I got to change the channel and the gratitude list did that for me. Yeah, I love that. That's a wonderful practical tool. And, you know, I had never thought of it as a mindfulness tool, but it absolutely is because it makes me aware of things I hadn't been aware of. And it helps to interrupt those um, sort of runaway train thought processes by purposely 
you know, throwing more into the mix than just whatever it is that my mind is hyper-focused on. Um, the, the other kind of mindfulness practice that I found helpful is what we'd call an informal practice. Uh, it's, I find it a lot easier. Ideally, you're doing both. Um, I do the best I can. Uh, but a, 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 an informal practice, what that looks like is just, it's kind of like that conscious breath thing that I was sharing from Eckhart Tolle. It's sort of whenever it occurs to you, just, you know, take a moment, take a breath, check in, check in with your body, you know, wiggle your fingers or your toes and, and focus on what that um, experience is like. Or if I'm, if I'm walking, I can slow down, you know, walk not as fast as I can but rather walk as slow as I reasonably can and notice what each footstep feels like. You know, you could do this for three seconds, 10 seconds. Uh, and it will, and in my experience, it has really been helpful in shifting uh, whatever's going on with me. And so that those kind of informal practices, like wherever you are, uh, sitting at a red light is an example I use all the time because it it seems that that's an experience that most of us have. Uh, instead of sitting at a red light saying, okay, turn green, turn green, turn green, um, I can sit at the red light and maybe just look around and play a little game like, oh, wh what if there was something that I, that I was meant to notice here right now? What would it be? Um, like, where's Waldo? You know, where's the interesting thing that's in my field of vision right now? Oh, look at that cool car. I never would have noticed that car if I'd just been obsessed with wanting the light to turn green. You know, one of the things that, um, you know, talking about a conscious breath, um, I don't even think about that, but I have this little handy dandy thing on my wrist called a Fitbit and it every now and then just out of the clear blue random goes breathe, you know, and even that as a I go, oh yeah, I haven't done that for a minute. <laughs> you know, it's time to do that. And, and so that is helpful. Um, you know, one of the things, you know, we talk about doing the next right thing whatever it is. And my sponsor told me it's whatever's in front of you when mm -hmm. I was complaining about something or another. And, and she said, where are you? I said, I'm in the kitchen. She said, are there dishes in the sink? I said, yeah. She said, do them. <laughs> and you know, oh, how's that going to help? Well, she said, notice the temperature of the water when you put your hands in. Notice when you pick up a dish, whether or not there's food stuck to it and how much effort it takes to move the food off of it. Notice how the, the water uh, is shed in a sheet off of a clean, a clean glass or a clean plate as it falls into the sink. And notice how when it dries, that sheet kind of uh, recedes in size, you know, and she made doing dishes a meditation for me, talking about informal practices, but it took my mind off of whatever it wanted to obsess about. Man, you had some good sponsors. That's all I have to say. What a wonderful suggestion and a vivid description of all of those little things that I know that I would just skip right past. But yes, mindfulness can be thought of maybe perhaps as noticing the details, you know, slowing down and noticing the details of something. And I, whatever it is, I know that it takes practice. And this is something that's always important for me to remember because, uh, you know, like many of us, I can want something to be done or, you know, I'm going to learn a new skill. I want to learn it already so that I can know it and then I can move on as if I'm missing out on something right on the other side of it. But it takes practice to do this. And the, the phrase that, I, that helps me the most 
for um, visualizing or really bringing that home is that saying that goes, if you walk 10 miles into the woods, you got to walk 10 miles out of the woods. Like, oh, okay. So I, I spent a long time um, developing my addiction, right? I might need to make at least a fraction of that much effort over time um, creating my recovery. And so it helps me to slow down and realize, you know, this is not a race. Um, I, I didn't all of a sudden overnight have a, a problem with alcohol, so I might not all of a sudden overnight, um, you know, be able to unwind all of that in my recovery. So it just takes practice, all of these things, whether it's doing the dishes or noticing your hands and feet or stopping at a red light and looking around for something interesting to notice, any of those kinds of things. It just takes time. It's a, there's a reason that we call these things a practice, right? Because we need to practice them over and over and over. Just make it a way of living, really. That's a great point about making it a way of living. You know, um, in my addiction, that was a way of living. You know, it was, I was obsessed with that way of living. You know, it's noon. You know, how much alcohol is in the refrigerator? Uh, it's four o'clock. Do I need to run to the store? You know, oh, I've been invited out for dinner. Can, you know, are we going someplace where I can get a drink there? You know, I mean, I thought about that all the time. And when I made the choice to engage in a recovery practice as opposed to an abstinence practice, then um, I needed to spend, I can't say as much time, but I needed to spend some effort in turning my thoughts toward my recovery practice. And what does that look like? That means if I'm wanting to to uh, not be obsessing about this, then what can I obsess about instead? Well, I can obsess about my concept of God. I can, I can obsess about a spiritual principle. I can obsess about a practice. I can consciously, intentionally focus my mind on, on this other thing that lives in the realm of recovery so that I can can become as practiced at that as I was about this rut that I was in, you know, and one of the things that I had to do, I was told to do, it, it connects with step 11 with conscious contact and it, and it, in step 11, it talks about how sometimes we will not pray that we are obstinate and we cannot pray, do it anyway. And it says, basically, if you say the same prayer over and over and over again, it'll open a crack. You're talking about putting your toe in the door. It wow. opens, it provides the opening, just the rote repetition over and over provides the opening for which a new idea can come in, you know, a new thought, the pause, it create, it forces a pause. And I used the serenity prayer for that because it was also a tool that I used, you know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Can I change this? No. Okay. Move on to the next piece of it. You know, the courage to change the things I can. Well, what, what can I change? I can't change this. I can't change that, but I can change this. What, you know, what about me? I can change about me, my thoughts, my ideas, my attitudes, my belief systems, you know, my actions, all of that kind of stuff, you know, and the wisdom to know the difference. I didn't have that for a long time which as you call it is the hula hoop principle. <laughs> yes, <know>? that's right. <laughs> you know, and so saying that prayer over and over and over again, and then when there would be a little break in the obsessiveness and I would go, can I change this? No, I can't change this. You know, that would be the opening that I needed in order to break the obsessive cycle. 
I love thinking of the serenity prayers like it's this perennial fork in the road. I always can make a choice, and it's always this way or that way. You know, there aren't eight different directions. It's two things. Do I have control over this? Yes or no. So do I need to accept it, or do I need to perhaps take an action and discern what that might be? Um, but that uh, one way that mindfulness supports my recovery or healing or growth is that it gives me an alternative. And that's what that, uh, you know, the serenity prayer fork in the road is almost like an instant uh, alternative. It's like at any moment, chances are, or I, I haven't thought about this, so maybe it's 100% true all the time. I'm not sure. At any moment, I can choose to whip out the fork in the road serenity prayer and say, hang on a second, you know, let me disrupt this pattern. You talked about that before. Um, by asking myself or by realizing that I can go left or I can go right, I can do this or I can do that, you know, what is going on here and which of these options is realistic in this Point at this point, it reminds me of um, I learned from having young kids that say if a, if a young child, two two year old, three year old, picks up something in the house that's maybe not appropriate for them to be playing with, um, if you just go to try to take it away from them, chances are it's going to create a horrible upset and a ruckus. So what you do instead is introduce something else and, and bring that in the mix and see, well, maybe the child will become more interested in this other thing than they are in the thing that they currently have. And that's just another way of saying what you were saying a few minutes ago. We bring in the you know, an alternative. We disrupt the pattern with a choice, whether it be the, you know, making a gratitude list or, or going to a meeting or, or are there dishes in the sink? Do them and pay attention to every detail of doing them. Um, I, I, I had that thing that you talked about earlier that if I, that, that said, if I don't worry about this, then it's something's going to go wrong basically is the thought. If I don't worry about this, then I'm going to miss something important and something's going to go wrong and it's going to be bad and I won't like it. And so I better worry about this. The, the alternative, maybe that fork in the road with the um, serenity prayer, it, it allows me another option. It's like, wow, well, I, I don't, I don't have to worry about this. I could, I could, you know, if there's action involved, let me do the doing. And if there's not, let me let it go and move on. Alternative, give me, I'm a two-year-old. Give me another toy to get my <laughs> mind off the first one. Yeah, that does work, doesn't it? Yes. You know, one of the things, another another thing I was, I was given lots of tools. One at a time when I wasn't getting it, you know, whatever the, the it was at that moment. And I was asked the question when I would call with this obsessive thought running through my mind. I, I, it was usually precipitated by a phone call or by a, a letter from the IRS, for example. <laughs> you know, And I would be in a panic about something. And I'd make this phone call, and my sponsor would say, can you do anything about this right now? This very minute, right now. And that would bring it back to right now. And I would say, well, no. And, and usually she'd say, well, read it to me. And I'd read it to her. And then she'd say, do you, is there anything you can do about this today? You know, because my mind was way out in the future. I was going to jail, you know, and and to bring it back down to today, what action can I take this moment? And then she said, set it aside and go to a meeting or set it aside and call somebody else. Set it aside, find somebody to help. Set it aside, go work on your steps. 
you know, I mean, it was, it was basically, for me, it was basically permission not to worry that I don't have to worry about that today. Tomorrow I can evaluate that again, but today I don't have to deal with that. I don't have to worry about that. Go do something else. So it, it's really kind of the same theme here over and over, you know, interrupt the thought, choose a different action. Yeah. Um, that I've, I have had to learn and it sounds like you're describing the same learning process. I've had to learn to let something go that I couldn't do anything about right now. It was genuinely difficult for me to relax at all if I had something that felt like it was hanging over my head. And I, I still have that, that dynamic to some extent, though it's very, very mild compared to how it was. And, and I'm actually good now at, um, you know, d dealing tomorrow with, Thing, the things that belong to tomorrow. And, and I, you know, I have certain tools for it, just like, you know, keeping a calendar or keeping a to-do list or a reminder list. Like with your example of the IRS letter, one way, something I know I would have to do in order to be able to let it go. So say I was in that situation. No, there's nothing that I can do today. You know, it's Sunday. There's nothing I can do about this. But on Monday... I could call them. In fact, they've invited me to call them. And so I was put on my, my calendar or my to-do list for Monday. So now I know I'm not going to forget, right? I don't have to worry about it. I'm not going to forget because I wrote it down. Uh, call, you know, call this number and ask this question. And then I can let it go. Now, I, I might still think about it some, but not like in the past where, where I would, you know, would literally, this is, you know, I have these, aha moments from time to time like oh this is why i drank so much well it's probably one of the reasons but that would be one of them it's like oh man this because i can't relax when i've got you know i'm going to keep using your example when i've got a letter from the irs when i've got you know test results pending from the physician that i'm worried about or any anything under the sun i can't relax uh and so let me drink because that will sort of force the issue and seemingly help me uh, to relax. And in recovery, I've found new and, and better ways. I, I would, you know, I wouldn't trade this for all the money in the world. You can keep it. I'll, I'll keep my recovery and my serenity. Absolutely. You know, one of the tools that I learned in Unity that was so helpful to me was this spiritual principle that what you focus on grows. And I decided there were certain things in my life I did not want growing anymore. <laughs> I did not want to think about them anymore. I did not, and it wasn't to say I was ignoring them, but it was to say I was making a conscious choice to not feed it with my thoughts any longer. And so that, again, you've talked about the power of choice. You've talked about interrupting or disrupting thought patterns, and it's starting with awareness. You know, that's where I go today is, do I want this in my life? Then let's not focus on it. Let's not feed it with these, these, uh, these kind of thoughts that follow along. Absolutely. And, and to me, it's critical to know I'm not pretending that it's not there. I'm just choosing not to give it more food, like the grandfather and the two wolves. Right. But now let us shift gears because it's time to move into action. Uh, Unity's fifth principle states, it's not enough to know these truths, we must live them. That means we must each take action in order to grow and recover. So here's something you can do to move from that racing mind to a sense of peace using mindfulness. So think of a situation or a time when you find that your mind is running a mile a minute seemingly on its own. 
Do you wake up in the middle of the night or early in the morning with your mind racing? Do things happen sometimes that seem to take over your attention and your thinking, apparently against your will? What's important is to pick one thing, a simple thing to focus on uh, for the purpose of this exercise, because you can take what we do right here into your uh, week this week and return to it anytime you choose in order to find a moment of peace. So let's use that, uh, at least to me, all too familiar example of a racing mind at night. Use a statement of power or what we refer to in unity as a denial to deny any power to the thoughts that seem to run themselves. You could say something like, racing thoughts do not control me. They are not the truth of my essence. Repeat it a few times in your head or say it aloud, but say it with conviction. Racing thoughts do not control me. They are not the truth of my essence. And follow that up immediately with a bold and positive affirmation of a new experience. And so you could say, as a spiritual being, I live my life from a place of peace. And then take a few quiet moments to relax and take it easy. There's no need to struggle. Give thanks for your new experience in the world and move on with your day. And once again, you'd uh, take a deep breath and relax. And, uh, and the denial, racing thoughts do not control me. They are not the truth of my essence. As a spiritual being, I live my life from a place of peace. So we've come to the end of our time together here today, and we hope you found something that can help you on your recovery path. Thanks, Reverend Dan Beckett, for our discussion and all the insights that you shared. And thank you to everybody that's listening to this podcast, whether it's live or via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. We bless you wherever you are on your recovery journey. And listeners, again, if you would like, you can always connect with us on our Facebook page anytime, Spirit of Recovery, to give us your thoughts and feedback. And we invite you to join us again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central. Until then, have a wonder-filled week. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify. Spotify.